Becoming truly heroic, becoming truly a man, will always lead us into the identity issue. All the great heroic journeys and story involve a man awakening to his true identity. It's no different when Jesus calls a man out to follow him. He will take him on a journey to become heroic like himself, and that journey will always lead us into a radical reframing of our identities. Now, the importance of our identities as men can hardly be overstated. Every day, every hour of every day, we are living out who we think we are. We rarely think about it, yet it affects everything. It's somewhat similar to the way contacts work. You don't think about the contacts you're wearing through the day because you are looking through them at everything else. The only time you think about them is when you put them on or take them off. It's just so with a man's identity. He looks at all of his life through that identity and only thinks about it when he stops, steps back, and examines it. Now, that's what we want to do today. We want to take a step back and look at the common ways men perceive themselves, stop, and examine them for a minute. And as we do, we want to consider the possibility that we have a limited and narrow view of masculinity in general. Remember what all the old stories have been telling us. We are so much more than who we think we are. The stories in the Bible tell us the same thing. How God perceives us as men is so much greater and fuller than how we perceive ourselves. We are being asked to awaken to that true identity. We are being asked to awaken to true masculinity. This is such a pressing cultural issue. The term toxic masculinity is now being thrown around. It's a masculinity that uses its strength not to do good to others, but to use and abuse them for a man's own personal gain or pleasure. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is a masculinity that is strong and assertive, yet receptive and compassionate. I think of characters in the Bible like David and Jeremiah in the Old Testament or John and Paul in the New Testament. They represent something of this new identity in Christ, a robust masculinity that doesn't suck life out of others. Instead, it offers life to others so that they flourish. My own story is one of wading through so many incomplete and insufficient views of masculinity. One of my early stories in high school that I remember so vividly is walking around looking at the bodies of the football players who seemed so strong and so large, and of course, my own body frame being one of skinny and somewhat small, and feeling that somehow I couldn't be a man if I didn't have a body like that. As I learned much later on, that's such an insufficient view of masculinity, but that at the time, it tainted me for so many years to really understand who I was supposed to be as a man. As I've learned now over the years, masculinity is a broad and massive plane of reality, of spiritual reality. When Jesus calls us out, we are asked to participate in that reality. It is both new to us and yet something we discover that feels old and true. We find that we didn't create masculinity. We didn't come up with the idea. We are being led back to the source of it, to God himself who created maleness, and to his son Jesus, who exemplified best 
that robust masculinity in such a way that it has set the world up. I'm Bill Daldo, and this is Heroic, a podcast about the surprising path to true manhood. Joining us will be Wes Yoder as we talk about a robust masculinity that is strong and assertive, yet receptive and passionate. Wes is the founder of the Ambassador Agency, a Christian-based literary agency and speakers bureau. He is also the author of Bond of Brothers and helps to lead the local chapter of the New Canaan Society, a fraternity of men committed to friendship with each other and with Jesus. Wes has spent much of his life thinking about masculinity and leading men into a more authentic version of it. In this episode, we'll be discussing how a man's faith in Christ can define his masculinity. A few of the specific topics discussed will be how both Wes and I have grown in our understanding of manhood, insufficient narratives of manhood in our culture, and feeling deeply as a man, how important that is as a part of our manhood. Wes has been a personal mentor and friend to me for over 20 years. I still remember the day when I first came to his front porch to seek his counsel on the confusion I felt as a man. Today's conversation only continues what we started then. It's been an amazing ride with Wes. Wes, thanks for being with us here today. Let's start with this question. I talked, uh, told the story of seeing those football players and wishing I had that body and thinking somehow that's what it meant to be a man. How has your view of manhood changed throughout the years? Where, where did you start and where are you now? Well, I had a, a fortunate upbringing in that we had no TV growing up, and so we had no football players in front of us, and we didn't have a lot of images on a television screen like uh, John Wayne and a lot of the other images of modern manhood back in the 50s and 60s when I was a kid. And so a lot of my uh, sense about manhood came from uh, my father. It came from our Amish relatives. It came from the men around us who were mostly a silent tribe of men. And as you know from some of our other conversations, those are some of the things that uh, triggered inside of me questions about who I am, why men have to act like we're in a library, why we can't talk, uh, <laughs> and and why it's not appropriate or or or, ex- or or commonplace many times for guys to talk about the things that they care about most deeply. The deep things. And so um, my sense of manhood um, was shaped um, in early, I mean, in, in my early high school years, I always I have this memory. Speaking of, of memories that shape you, of everybody always interrupting me whenever I would talk. And I go, why do they listen to my friend Ken, who who is a charming guy but didn't say anything more than I did? But they listen to him, and they interrupt me. And so there was this sense of uh, I'm not really that important. What I don't, what I have to say, and what I have to think uh, about and share isn't really very important. So I was largely silent. And I remember sitting in my apartment when I was 20, about 24 years old, reading something in C.S. Lewis, something in G.K. Chester, and I was on a journey. I, maybe it was 1975. I would have been 25 years old. And I remember sitting in my apartment and having this awakening of the mind that said, and I, sh- I stood up and raised my hands and shouted, I can think, I can think. Wow. And it was a sense of coming into my own as a time of awakening in my own personal manhood 
that I knew I would never again because I could do that important thing that men do. I could think I would never be at the disadvantage again. Didn't mean everybody was going to stop interrupting me, but at least I could have some thoughts that were that were, that I knew were mine and that were important to me, and that it, mattered. It sounded like what happened to you is you began to find your voice and own it. This is this is who I am in terms of my thinking, and then I can speak that out. I was also at the same time a little before that, uh, and and forever since that time, writing little notes, writing little things, writing little. Uh, lines, little quotes in my journal, something. And it was an expression. I've gone back. We have a little group that's starting to get together, just a group of of friends of couples. And they said, bring something that you've written. And I I stumbled across this file of things that I had written in my 20s. And I go, some of us really good, but I but but it's never seen the light of day because I didn't be, I didn't be, I didn't know if it was good and yeah, I didn't, you were just know, going. With I didn't what know you whether knew. I could believe yeah. in it or yeah. not. Yeah. But that that was really an experience of coming into my own, of learning that self-expression for a man is one of the most important things that he can do. Uh, to learn what what his voice is, learn that he does not have to be silent. Learn how to use wisdom and discernment about what you say, but that it matters. You matter. And the words that come out of your mouth reflect the interior life that you have. And it's incredibly significant that that become um, heard, at least in your own ears, first of all, and then then for others as well. Yeah, when I hear you speak about that, I hear about coming into my own sense of true strength. Not, not a false strength, but a true sense of I have something that I, I know is truth and I need to speak this out in the in my own peculiar and unique way. I was a farm kid, and so um, we, you know, the glory of a young man is his strength. Proverbs says it. And I was a tough kid, and uh, there was there was only one guy in the entire high school that actually beat me uh, in uh, in in a wrestling match, and it was because my nose started to bleed, and I and I, I lost on a point thing. And so I was. <laughs> so you were tough. I was. I was a tough kid. And in, in fact, um, the the day that wrestling was over for the season was the day that I nearly pinned the the coach who was the state oh, e- Eastern Pennsylvania state that wrestling been champion. It, it, was, it was really bad. So I never had any um, any doubt about my physical strength. I, but I, but but learning the more gentle strength of 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 what actually creates your manhood. Your physical strength doesn't create it; it's a part of an expression of it. Yes. But what it's not actually, the center of it? Yeah, it's not the center of it. What what actually creates uh, your being as a man and learning the strength of that? That was that was an experience that really started happening for me in my twenties. That's amazing. Talk about some other insufficient views of manhood that you just see out there in the culture. Men well, are this, or men are supposed to be this, or whatever. Well, I, I have this, uh, you know, the, you know, the macho thing, for example. Yes. And, and being able to impress the women and being, being able to talk about all the, all the sports statistics in the world or whatever it might be that in your world gives you some sense of credibility. Whatever that little status. click. Yeah, well, status. Whatever that little click of, of – of men represents in your community. Maybe maybe there are five or six or ten guys that you tend to get together with on a fairly regular basis uh, socially. Maybe it's to drink beer. Maybe it's to watch a game. Whatever you talk about in that circle, whether it's the weather or your work or how good your golf game has gotten, you can keep that at your surface all day long. You know, and And the things that really matter are the things that you care about. 
and the the world right now, speaking of a you know of a caricature uh, about manhood, is trying to tell us what we care about instead of us figuring out from ourselves deep within uh, what what do we what do we really care about? What are we really attracted to? You know, the church and Hollywood are both telling us a lie at one level, and that is that the that the deepest driving uh, desire of men is sex. And it's not. No. It's not. It's a desire for beauty. It's a desire for honor. It's a desire and a longing for home to actually belong. And that's the message for men that I hope comes through so uh, much in your book and in, in in the podcast that you're doing is that this sense of belonging and finding where your true home really is, first of all, within you, and then in the community of life that you build around you as a result of you being a healthy man. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. And reminded me of the Chesterton quote, the man who goes to the whorehouse is actually looking for God. Correct. You know, and it's just the the, the sort of the, what shall I call it, the 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 overlaying issues of, of sex and sexual desire, they, they are never the real issues. Those are just the way in which the they sort of appear, right. or those underlying issues right. that are so powerful and can be so... Uh, redemptive and beautiful once they are sort of a man locks into them right. and finds his true strength there. Well, one of the things that uh, to me has become very important uh, in my life is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're taught uh, to be extraordinarily self-critical uh, because we have, to, we have to root out from within us what's wrong with us. And so we have these 20, 30, 40, 50 year problems and all we've ever done is address them in a very, very self-critical way. And it hasn't helped. The problem's there 50 years later. What might help would be observing why you have this particular desire, why what's you have this tendency, yes. what's underneath yes. it. Yeah. And, and this is so important. And it's, it's to me, an area in, in our life together as Christian men that we have not explored very much yet because we've been a little bit of afraid of saying, well, you mean I don't have to criticize myself? Well, it doesn't mean you have to accept your sin. It doesn't mean you have to accept your weakness in that sense. But you have to treat it, first of all, with gentleness and kindness, the way our Father does. That, there you go. That's right. Absolutely. And be, you know, if we could display compassion to ourselves in the way the Father has compassion on us, right. if we could just catch a little bit of that, it would frame the way in which we see our own, you know, weaknesses and faults and sins in a way I think that would be transforming. One of the things that as I get older, I have so much fun doing is, um, uh, on theological issues, asking people, "Was that is that in the Bible, or where is that in the Bible?" And you know, a lot of these, a lot of these constructs that we have, it's really interesting against the light of Scripture. The other thing is, that's that's interesting is when you hear people all the time. You hear it, you hear it in and out of the church. Uh, you know, putting themselves down or saying, "Oh, I'm just this," or "I'm this." You know, the the naming part of your book, you you name yourself this, right. and then the question, and this comes back to identity, is is this what your father says about you, your right. heavenly father? Is this, is this the way your heavenly father sees right. you? And it's as though we have to give each other permission and ourselves permission to see ourselves the way our father does. Right. So if I, have a, if I have a young son, I have a young grandson, so this is a good example. Uh, I have a grandson who, who can do all kinds of, get into all kinds of trouble, and yet he's this incredibly loving kid. And, and he could easily begin to see himself with the wrong kind of training as I'm this, I'm a mess, I'm a, I'm a, but as a grandfather, 
I don't see him that way. I see him as a boy with some typical problems that we're going to have to work on and this absolutely lovable, lovable being. And I think that's the view that our father has of us. He doesn't see Bill or Wes yeah. in our failures as, as, oh, that defines him. No, I still got some work to do in Bill and Wes's life. And I will be, I will be about my business doing it, you can be sure. But they're lovable. These, these, are, these, these are men, my sons, to be cherished. Yeah. I think probably some of the most, and I think about this, some of the most pivotal stories in my life is, is when I've been reframed or re-imaged by somebody else. It's sort of like, I thought I was this way, and somebody says, no, 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 no. This is who you are. Right. Right. And because we don't have the capacity to see ourselves the way we really are. Our identities are not something we can sort of self-construct. It has to be given to us from the exterior. Right. And I think that's our issues with masculinity. Mm-hmm. That sense of Maleness is not something we can self-construct. It's something that we're asked to sort of, you know, be participate in or to use other language, we are, we are that is spoken into us and called out of right. us. And our Heavenly Father does that the best. I think, I think we have been made alive as children, which is why God says, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then somehow in our adult life, through shame, through guilt, through failures, through disappointments with ourselves, it's as though we become shrunken away from our childhood. And God wants to restore that. Um, there's, a, there's an epitaph uh, that I think is, uh, that represents this in a, on a gravestone in London. It says, here lies Jeremy Brown, born a man, died a grocer. <laughs> so, so, so you 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 took on this other identity. You right. took on something. It was whatever you did. That's what that's how that's what you became known as. But you were really actually a man. You were born a man. Right. You lost some of your manhood in this child likeness, um, and and now it's important that this child likeness become a way of recovering. Maybe the only way of recovering the true elements of your manhood. Right. Uh, that's well said. Let's let's talk about let's go here because because the whole <laughs> macho image of men, uh, you know, the whole sort of posturing, the whole um, sort of put your game face on, and the whole idea that men in general we don't speak about the deep things. Let's let's talk about why do you think feeling deeply is such a large component of real manhood? Well, I think that um, there, there are so many of us who spend so much time being absent from ourselves. Yes. Absent, absent from our true feeling, absent from what we really care about. And, and we, we, we take on these, these messages that we hear. Now it's the screen problem, right? You know, what we get through our screens, through our phones, everything telling us all this stuff that we should feel, that we should be, that we should think, that we should the and, way and, we should, and it's all out there. And it's, it's all, all out there. All and exterior. It's, and it's all it's all a fake image. It's, yes, it's all it is. it's a representation of something, but it's not reality. And and I think um, the the reason feeling deeply matters so deeply. <laughs> I mean, how do you express this uh, more clearly with the English language, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's because inside of those feelings is where we discover what we care about, who we are, and what we love. And, and we are shaped by what we loved uh, more than any other thing. We, we can also be shaped by what we hate. That's also a feeling. But in terms of the positive place that we want to go, uh, being shaped by what we love and being able to admit um, that we love it. I remember uh, when I was falling in love with Linda, 
and I was I was 27, almost 28 years old, and I had a friend who who wisely said to me, Wes, you love her. Why don't you just say it? Why can't you say that you love her? And I couldn't let myself go. And partly was it was it was because of of I think protecting myself. Like, what if she didn't love me? Right. And can I actually admit this this depth of feeling that says I care about this woman so much that I would want to spend the rest of my life with her, and and risk the possibility of rejection because that that's the thing when we yeah, feel deeply and when we speak it. It's a it's a risky proposition. Yeah, because when I asked her to marry me, she said no. <laughs> so well, you must have convinced her at some I point. I didn't. I, I didn't. I had this incredible sense that that this was of God. The whole. I mean, I had I had more confidence in my heart toward Linda that she was the one that, that I was to marry than anything I had ever experienced in my life wow. before. I left California with ring in hand. She didn't get the ring. She wasn't going to. I just said. Think about it and let me know if there's any change. And and six days later, on my birthday, May nineteenth, nineteen seventy eight, I have a, a yellow uh, Western Union tele- telegram. <laughs> all, all you all you kids out there, listen to this that don't know what you've never seen a telegram. By the way, you can I, still send telegrams. Yeah, I still have that, and it all it was one word on it, and it said yes. Oh wow, amazing. So yeah, the feelings the feelings part of our life are are the places where we live. Um, you know, when you read uh, texts of Scripture like Psalm 104, where it, this is just a, what some of the most beautiful poetry in Scripture ever, ever written about the beauty of nature and what God has done with it. And he gives, you know, he gives bread uh, to strengthen the heart of man. He gives grass for the cattle. He gives wine to gladden the heart. He gives this. He gives that. He gives the other thing. And it's this joyful expression. And it's inside um, inside of these feelings, um, where we where we find the the better characteristics that we like of love and of joy and of yes. kindness and of of self giving and of generosity, it's in. I mean, most people aren't generous, for example, unless they feel generous, right? Most people aren't able to express anything about joy unless they feel joy. So so all of this is connected um, in 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 God's gracious. Um, uh, way of having created us that we should actually feel what we live and to feel being alive. Right, and that means being that means being inside of ourselves. Yes, so I does. have to bring up this point. I'm a very am, very much an amateur in modern neuroscience and enough of an amateur to make me quite dangerous. But I do know this point. One of the things we discovered about the way the brain works is that the primary way in which the brain organizes itself is through emotion. Right. So when a man tells me, I don't like touchy-feely stuff, I go, no, actually, what you feel most of the time is blankness or anger. And all those other emotions, Mm -hmm. you simply sort of try to suppress or push aside because the brain cannot operate without emotion. Without emotion, you die, you don't breathe, you don't live. So that whole finding, when I found that out, it's like... That makes sense of my experience. That's why I understand why emotion is so powerful. And I, it's why Dad often said, uh, "Wes, you're going to find in life that there are a lot of people, a lot of dead men walking around. It's because we have we have suppressed that yeah. part of our life and think it doesn't matter or think it's not important, and then we become afraid of it." Yeah, and that is probably one of the worst places for a man to be, right? Because you're always running away from who yeah. you really are. 
running away from yourself, which is not a good place to not be. Not a good place no, to be. No, it's a terrible place. Let's go here. What what scripture has really challenged you to rethink manhood? Well, I want to I want to refer to two scriptures. One is about the prodigal son in Luke 15 where it says and he came to himself. Yes. You know, he's That's just what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, he's returning to himself and we have been we have been so afraid of of uh, you know the e- Eastern religions and things have have had some sense of this, and of course it's in that sense. But but there is a biblical sense of returning to yourself, coming home to yourself, coming home to yourself. Yes. That that is biblical. That is that is in Christ. That is in you know in in our brotherhood. And and this is an important thing. So so, the prodigal son re- coming back to himself was what happened when I was face down in a barnyard in Dixon, Tennessee, in my mid twenties, when. I knew I had to come to Jesus' meeting. I mean, it was that's a long story. I'm, I'm sure I've told you before, and it's too long for this particular uh, podcast. The other scripture, though, that I want to mention that I think is incredibly significant because men wind up in places of their life in, in sorrow and suffering that they never expected. I was the guy, personally, I was the guy who was going to av- avoid the midlife crisis. Well, I didn't have I didn't. I, I was not unfaithful to my wife. I didn't have that kind of midlife crisis, but I endured the suffering and sorrow and the emptiness that men experience. And there's a long story behind that. But I started looking at um, at the scriptures about this. And Hebrews two ten and eleven in that in that in that scripture it says it is fitting that the author of our salvation, in bringing many sons to glory, think about that. In bringing many sons to glory should be perfected by what he suffered. And I thought Jesus was perfect. Oh, well, it doesn't mean that, Wes. What does it mean? It means he was completed. Yeah, but you haven't helped me because I thought Jesus was complete. So there must be a question here that we ask ourselves, how was Jesus the author of our salvation and bringing many sons to glory? How is it that he was completed by what he suffered? And I believe that he took on our humanity, he was the perfect son of God and the perfect son of man, and he took on our humanity. And yet the humanity that he took on, just like ours, is not completed or perfected without suffering. And that's how he became the man of sorrows who is acquainted with my grief and with yours and everybody listening to this. And that's what you discovered in your own grief. That's what I discovered. That's where I met him. And then connecting that back to feelings, discovering that that all of this matters so much to him that he, he has made room through suffering and sorrow for more joy and more love and more generosity and, op- and, uh, yes. and just more openness, more, more relaxed. I don't have to clutch onto things thinking I have to provide even my own groceries. <laughs> Yes, he can be the provider. Even he for that. can even do that. Go, go, go back now. After you, since you said that, I want you to to return just for a minute to the prodigal son story, and in light of what you said about the Hebrews passage, what exactly is it about being the son who comes home that completely um, refigures how we see manhood? And if you want to tell a little bit of that story in the barn, feel free to well, do that. Well, um, the, the barnyard story is very simple. Um, I was sitting up playing cards one night with my girlfriend and my best friend. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, after losing the worst game of, of cards I've ever lost in my life, uh, she looks at him and says, shall we tell him? 
And she said, and he says, yeah, we might as well. And they said to me, we're in love. Uh, he's going to get a divorce and we're going to get married. And this is, and, and we're not going to make any more payments on the farm that we had, that we bought together, that he and I had bought together. Uh, that was the we're, bomb we're, show. We're going to sell it at, at auction. So uh, being a farm kid, I know what it means to be face down in a barnyard. Yeah. And that's where I went. Um, I, I was, I, I wept all night long. And it was an incredible thing because it, I heard two things that I'm very sure were from God that night. One was, I said, what about her? Because I, it was a process of letting go. What about her? And he said to me, tell her that I love her. Mm. I had a decision to make whether I was going to humiliate myself and tell this person who had hurt me and was walking away from me that Jesus loved her. Second thing he told me is that if you obey me, I will make you a pillar of strength to those around you. I promise you in the midst of my tears, neither one of those things, the reason I know it was from God, neither one of those things were anywhere near what I was thinking. Right, yeah, so, and that's a good, that's a good so discernment point. In the morning, a 6.30 in the morning, I'm lifting my head up off the dirt of the barnyard floor. The sun's coming up, and there's never a brighter sunrise than when the, sh- the light of God shines through the yeah. prism of your tears. I went in, went to bed, comes a knock on the door. She wants, she's checking on me, wanting to know if I'm fine. Bill's in the, in the, in the kitchen cooking breakfast. She wants to know if I'm doing okay. And I said, yes, but I have something. I, I mean, I had a decision to make. I right mean, then I, 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 right then and there, I knew I'd never do it. I said, I have something I'm supposed to tell you. And she said, what's that? I said, I am supposed to tell you that Jesus loves you. She said, what? I said, Jesus loves you. I turned over and went to sleep. Um, later, I found out that they had been talking about whether I had seen angels or not. <laughs> and I can promise you I did not see any angels, but I did have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that was so powerful and life-changing for me. Right, and that's what brought you. Yeah, that, that was kind of your prodigal son story. It was my out, prodigal son story. Com- coming to yourself. Yeah. And it seems like as I listen to you, Wes, that story is sort of emblematic of your life journey. You know, you continually more and more coming home to yourself, coming home to your voice, coming home to being centered inside of yourself, and coming home to be uh, a pillar of strength to others around you. There's an amazing story of a reconciliation service between the Reformed churches of Switzerland and the Anabaptist churches of of America uh, that were sent out of uh, Switzerland through the persecution under Zwingli and others. And one of the lines in German that I like so much, basically, I won't say it in German, but I, oh, I guess I could for those who want to hear it in German, but it basically says, I too am a son that has come home. Wow. And uh, I will have the privilege in April of standing with those same reform leaders of Switzerland saying to them in German, I too am a son who has come home. Wow. And we are all sons of the living God who have come home once we have come to Christ. That's right. This has been Heroic. Join us for the next episode as we once more take up the topic of masculine identity, but this time focus on how the riddle of that identity is solved by Christ himself. If you're enjoying the Heroic Podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend who might want to listen in. Rating and word of mouth are the best ways to get the word out. You might also like my book, Heroic, 
the surprising path to true manhood. Heroic will give you what you need to take the journey to become a man. It will help you find your guide for the journey, own your true identity, and discover your quest. This is how we become truly heroic. Go to heroicbook.com for more information and to order a copy. That's heroicbook.com.